morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, we'll be reading verses 12 through 19 in one of the two Pew Bibles. That will either be page 859 or 983. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Before I read this, I'd like to remind you that this is God's very word, his infallible word. It's holy. He's preserved us for it and it for us. If you'd please now give the reading of God's word your full attention. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What do we know about God's word? It withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I will pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your word become flesh. Jesus Christ, who has spoken your scripture to us by the Spirit, testifying to the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glory. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to now come give us ears that can hear, and eyes that can see the truth of the gospel in your word. I pray, Lord, that you, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Lord, I pray that all of us would not walk away with one more Sunday, but that in this time we would encounter nothing less than your presence in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. I'd like to say hello. My name is Josh Haven, and it is an incredible honor and privilege to be before you to preach God's Word today. I am originally from Amarillo, Texas. My limited time I've spent in McKinney in my life was mainly involving club soccer at nearby soccer fields not far from this building. So it's, I'm very glad to be with you today. The passage that I just read is concerned with a topic that is very somber and sober. And that is fitting for a letter such as 1 Peter, which is incredibly serious. 1 Peter is filled with warnings and cautions to be alert, to be watchful, to be sober-minded. Peter says, wake up, in chapter 5. And here today, we're looking at a theme that many of us shy away from. We are gazing at suffering together and how the gospel informs how we think about suffering. And so today, what we are essentially going to look at is three things. We're going to look at who Jesus is, according to 1 Peter, who is the crucified and risen Lord who suffered. Secondly, we're going to look at how we can rejoice in the midst of suffering. And last, we will look at how we share with Christ in suffering. 
So first, Jesus, according to 1 Peter, suffered. And the scandal of that sentence is lost on us a little bit today. If you have been a part of this church or similar churches, you've probably said the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed before. And there's a line in there where we confess that God of God, light of light, very God of very God, the maker of all things, the Son, Jesus Christ, suffered. And it is an astonishing claim that Jesus suffered. But if you'll look with me in your Bibles over at 1 Peter chapter 1, as we read in our gospel reading together today, God has, the, the salvation and life of God has broken into this world of sin and death in Jesus Christ. And this was testified to in 1 Peter chapter 1 by the prophets who predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. Moreover, First Peter goes on to talk about in chapter 1 the blood of Christ that re- redeems us, more precious than gold and silver. How cr- the Father raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. Over in chapter 2 in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Jesus is described throughout First Peter as one who suffered, especially at the end of chapter 2. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter goes on in chapter 3. Verses 18, he says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. At the beginning of this chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And as we read in verse 13, rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. The gospel in 1 Peter is nothing less than a new exodus. This world that's in in slavery, that's in an exile of sin and death, has been redeemed in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Christ, by his suffering in our place for our sin, freely opens the grace of God to us for salvation, if only you put your faith in Christ. But this is a rather difficult word for us to hear today, um, and for a number of reasons. But this depiction of Christ, the revelation of God as one who suffered, was of tremendous importance, for instance, to Martin Luther. Martin Luther compared two kinds of theologians. And if you think about this, I think you'll hear a lot of resonances of this in our own time. Martin Luther said in 1519 that a person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. But instead, he deserves to be called a theologian who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. The scandal of the Christian confession is that the almighty maker of heaven and earth, freely, the, the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, accomplished salvation on our behalf through the suffering and death and shame of the cross. Jesus, in dying on the cross for us, not only took our place for sin, 
He was cursed by the law on our behalf. He took the place of the utmost shame for us. And this was a scandal in the ancient world. Nowadays, it's common to see images of the cross. They're on, I believe, the top of the steeple. Maybe you're wearing a cross necklace, and that's perfectly fine. I'm not here to tell you to get a different necklace or something. But we've become a little bit inoculated to the offense of the cross. Um, Perhaps the most um, compelling image that would be similar in our time is something like a noose or something from a lynching tree. This was a place where... um, Fear and intimidation was used in, that, in the Greco-Roman world to disquell um, uprisings against the, the world order as it existed. And Deuteronomy, as I mentioned, indicates that those who are hung on a tree are cursed by God. How could this have been good news? This was presented in the, the early years of the church as a great conflict. And Athanasius, one of the, the most rich thinkers about the cross, wrote that what is most wonderful is that even at Christ's death, Rather, I should say, his trophy over death, which is the cross. All creation confessed that he who is made known and suffered in the body was not simply a human being, but son of God and savior of all. Christ took our shame for us in our place. And as a a recent theologian, Todd Billings, wrote in a book called Rejoicing in Lament, written after he was diagnosed with cancer, he writes that in a deeply paradoxical way, full of a mystery that blinds by its brightness. Jesus Christ, the God-human, displays the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by taking on our human suffering and terror. Christ, the God-human, takes on the path of human suffering so that we are not pioneers in the darkness, so that we are not in a free fall. Instead, even when our suffering seems senseless, even when we feel like we are in a free fall, We can look to Christ to see, hear, and taste that we are still in the ever-faithful, ever-loving hands of God. And so secondly, because Christ suffered for us, because he has risen from the dead also, we can rejoice in Christ amidst suffering. I feel like I need to make a little disclaimer at this part about about the passage we read, 1 Peter 4, 12-19. This passage is given to a specific church that Peter's writing to, the churches in, um, the, around the Mediterranean Sea, with some specific instructions about suffering. And within its context, the focus of these words is not so much just general suffering, the chaos that happens in the world that we all know and, and hurt from, such a, um, but rather the primary focus of these words concerns the specific suffering that comes from being persecuted for the Christian faith. In just a moment, we are going to talk about that and explore the focus of this and what this passage has to say regarding suffering on behalf of Christ and persecution. But nonetheless, we can still learn from this passage in Scripture regarding other forms of suffering, because undoubtedly, the good news of of this gospel for those who are being persecuted is also good news to those who are suffering for various other reasons. First of all, suffering is to be expected. If you look with me at 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We are always surprised when we suffer. And this passage is not calling us to just a drear Eeyore syndrome where we constantly expect the utter worst. And when anything good happens, I wasn't expecting that. Um, That is not what this passage is calling us to. But this passage does call you to reflect soberly about your life. For the most part, 
in our modern moment, we avoid suffering as much as possible and constantly seek convenience at every turn, always taking the path of least resistance. And the Christian gospel offers a very compelling view of life. As, as Herman Bovink summarized the gospel, the, the Father's good creation, ruined by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. This world created good is now broken and fallen. Already in Christ, God's work of new creation has been seen in the resurrection of Christ, and it will be seen fully when Christ returns. That this gospel gives comfort has actually been the cause of a lot of resistance to Christianity historically, um, from people like Friedrich Nietzsche saying that, oh, this is just something y'all, this is just superstition ancient people used to believe so that they could console themselves with the chaos and terror of life, or Karl, Mar uh, Karl Marx calling religion the opiate of the masses. But um, you can ask those thinkers if their own philosophies do the same thing for them, um, or whether theirs are, are really true also. But what is so compelling about this Christian gospel, and this view of suffering, is that it is true. It is our experience that this world is full of wonder and good things, and full of the utmost horror and injustice and violence. But in Christ, we have hope that one day it will be completely made new. It's hard for us to, be, to have this mindset, though, especially when so much of American Christianity has been seduced by what Martin Luther called the theology of glory. There are a lot of, um, there's a lot of Christian thinking or teaching at the popular level that um, if you believe this message, life will go well for you. If you do these things, if you give us money, if you read these books, if you do these practices, you'll be healed of your problems, or you're, you'll avoid bad things. And it, it is, at its cruelest, at its most cruel, it is so harmful and hurtful to those who are suffering for no reason of their own doing. The good news of the gospel, though, is that we share with Christ in suffering. And in, first, in, in the, Paul's letter to Colossians, he writes that... If you have been raised with Christ, you are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you saw in our passage, it says that we share with Christ in our sufferings. And Paul writes, You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And I, I wanted to... I want to read to you an extended quote from Todd Billings' book. I don't like to read quotes this long, but it was so good that I, I couldn't paraphrase it. Um, on suffering. And if you are here this morning in the midst of grave suffering, of bereavement, of chronic pain, of um, feeling overwhelmed at the, the chaos of our world, um, take your pick of anything in our news cycle that is of concern. These are some words preached on Colossians 3 that Todd Billings writes about. So, having been united to the resurrected Christ, should we expect our lives to be one victory after another, becoming increasingly immune to the sufferings of the world? Not for Paul, as my professor John Thompson noted. Alongside this passage in Colossians, he wrote about the death of Jephthah's daughter in Judges 11, a death that appears nonsensical and absurd if there ever was one. She was killed because of a rash vow made by her father. Yet Thompson noted that the early church father Origen considered her a martyr, whose apparently senseless death contributed to the defeat of evil. This was not a throwaway comment. Origen's own father and many of his closest friends were martyred. He knew that such deaths looked senseless. They looked like God-forsakenness. 
From Origen's earthly perspective, the death of Jephthah's daughter and martyrs around him look like defeats. But in Christ, as Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Its true glory is hidden from view to be later revealed with him in glory. But right now it is hidden, safely hidden with Christ in God. What Origen has been saying is in many ways what Martin Luther meant by the theology of the cross. Namely, that the Christian life The Christian life looks a lot more like humiliation and rejection than it does like triumph and glory. For Origen, the martyrs lived their lives in faith and faithfulness, even when neither life nor God seemed kind to them, even through the cruelest ambiguity, when their faithful discipleship bore no visible fruit, they still kept their faith. And they kept the faith, I think, because however much they suffered, however unlikely it seemed that God was with them, they still entrusted that their lives were safe hidden with Christ. Thompson admonished his listeners that when their lives take turns that appear to be dead ends, they should remember that they are hidden with Christ in God. Then came a line I had forgotten. Remember that, please, when you're only in your 30s or 40s or your 50s or 60s, and the doctors say it may not be benign. In tears, I heard this sermon in a way unlike I I now heard it 16 years earlier. The deaths of my friends with cancer and my own death will likely appear to be absurd. An abrupt, and seemingly arbitrary end to a life with so many strands, so many joys from God's good creation, so many stories longing for completion. But as Thompson went on to point out, while all this may sound somber, there is good news here in the promise that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. It's not your job to fashion your own success as if you were God. It's not your job to write the last chapter of your life. It's not your job to tie up the loose ends. It's not your job to make sense of everything. Your life is hid with Christ and God. Let it be your highest act of faith and faithfulness to leave it there. Leave the ambiguity of discipleship at the cross. Let God gather up the fragments. Let God finish the story. That is the good news for those who are in the midst of suffering, that our life can be hidden with Christ and God. And as 1 Peter, at the end of this passage, reads in verse 19, We have a faithful creator to whom we are entrusting our souls. We are not just in a void of chaos and motion and and mass and movement and matter. We have a faithful creator in whom we are trusting, who will one day set this world to rights, as he said in 1 Peter 2. And last, I'll briefly now mention our commission in this passage to share in Christ's sufferings. It is a little bit difficult for us to feel the force of this text simply because of our situation today is so vastly different than that of Peter when he was writing this letter. Um, Before the, to to stay on point there, um, it's not that none of us in this room never experience opposition for our Christian faith, but we don't know the kind of persecution that uh, that Peter is writing to here. Um, I do not in any way want to minimize how difficult it is in your workplace or amongst your friends to stand up for your belief that Christ is Lord, to have integrity in matters pertaining to scriptural truth. But we are not in a situation where um, Christians are being rounded up and burned at the stake by the government. Um, That kind of stuff is going on when Peter is writing this epistle here. And so it can be easy for us to feel removed as if oh, well, that's not going on. Um, I don't really know what this has to say to me, though, about suffering with Christ. But um, we have a commission 
here to share in Christ's sufferings. Um, If you notice in verse 17, there's a very ominous word in this passage. This is not saying that God justifies on the basis of works, but there's a very direct address to the church. It says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Suffering exposes integrity or the lack thereof. And um, we, in our time, are, it's very easy to be seduced and to confuse Christian faith with our cultural values here, especially in the Bible Belt. I'm a lifelong Texan, born and raised in Amarillo, and it's very easy to be syncretistic, to just go along with what culture thinks, whether that, um, on, on any really direction along the political spectrum or along the values spectrum of our world, it's very easy to confuse um, loving people with loving truth. It's very easy to confuse um, just general southern um, good old boy culture with what the gospel actually has to say and what the scriptures have to say. But what we are definitely commissioned to do in this passage is to suffer with Christ by giving ourselves up to love others. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, so we are to love one another. As Ephesians says, and one of, the, one of the richest reflections on this, probably in, in history, is from John Calvin. And there's a whole section of his great work of theology, Institutes of the Christian Religion. There's a whole section on bearing the cross. And he says that the pious mind must ascend still higher, namely where Christ calls his disciples when he says that every one of them must take up his cross. Those whom the Lord has chosen and honored with his fellowship must prepare for a hard, laborious, troubled life, a life full of many and various kinds of evils, it being the will of our Heavenly Father to exercise his people in this way while putting them to the proof. Having begun this course with Christ the firstborn, he continues it toward all his children. For though that the Son was dear to the Father above others, the Son in whom he was well pleased, yet we see that far from being treated gently and indulgently, we may, see, we may say that not only was Christ subjected to a perpetual cross while he dwelt on the earth, but his whole life was nothing else than a kind of perpetual cross. The apostle says that though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Why then should we exempt ourselves from that condition to which Christ our head was willing to submit, especially since he submitted on our account that he might in his own person exhibit a model of patience? Therefore, the the apostle declares that all the children of God are destined to be conformed to him. This gives us great comfort in hard and difficult times, which men seem to avoid as much as possible, to think that we are holding fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. That as he passed into glory through a labyrinth of many woes, so we too are conducted there through many trials. As the apostles say, we must through many trials enter the kingdom of God that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. How powerfully should it soften the bitterness of the cross to think that the more we are afflicted with adversity, the surer we are made of our fellowship with Christ by communion with whom our sufferings are not only blessed to us, but tend greatly to the furtherance of our salvation. That is what gives us the ability to rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings. That is how we are at the end of this verse. If you look at chapter 4, verse 19 of 1 Peter, we are to suffer according to God's will 
entrusting our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Doing good. Willfully going out of your way, even when it involves suffering, to give up your lives to love others. To that end, I'll I'll conclude with one last reflection on that. Micah Edmondson is an OPC pastor in Grand Rapids, and he notes that um, a woman once wrote a, a letter to Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1950s asking how a good and loving God could allow such terrible things as slavery and violence to happen to people of African descent in America. And Dr. King wrote back that when I consider the suffering in our land, I see tough questions, but I also see a wisdom that especially comes from the cross, where Jesus went to die in a very public manner for the sins of mankind. As he hung on the cross, Christ dramatized and absorbed the reality of sin and violence in the world. But there was something more. In dying as he did, Jesus showed us a wisdom. He gave us an example of how to face the evil in the world that we otherwise would have a hard time realizing. Christ embraced his suffering because he knew it had a higher purpose. Jesus showed us how to engage suffering to the glory of God and how God can turn that suffering into redemption. Micah Edmondson adds, King took this same lesson of facing evil with good, of addressing violence with nonviolence into his ministry. He applied it to the social situation of blacks in America. He spoke to them of redemptive suffering. For King, suffering became a powerful social force. People asked how he could take black people and put them in harm's way. How could he do this? Why not respond to hate with hate? But these people didn't understand that love overcomes evil. Despite it all, King committed to God, to Christ. He maintained the belief that God would bring good out of evil. In just a moment, we are about to come to the Lord's table of the crucified and risen Messiah who held up the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Christ suffered, and his sufferings are our nourishment. They are our healing and wholeness, our restoration to God. And we are called to fellowship in his sufferings as we go out loving others, anticipating that last day when we will stand face to face before the one who has risen from the dead, still bearing wounds on his body, and he will give healing to the nations. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, as we come in a moment to the table, we pray that we would feed on you by faith, mindful, as your scripture says, that the cup that we bless, it's a koinonia, it's participation in your blood. The bread we break, it's koinonia, it's participation in your broken body. Help us to feed on you in our hearts by faith, and help us to share in your sufferings by how we love you and love others. In Jesus' name, amen.